There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and welcome to a yes another Business Elevation Show on Voice America. And I can't quite believe it. This is episode 299, uh, unique weekly show. Um, we've been going in a couple of weeks for seven years, which is just incredible. Um, so delighted to be back with you again. And we're going to be talking today about learning from setbacks and um, how a handful of fantastic failures in the world's oldest desert led to a world record. Um, but also, I think it's a, this is a brilliant topic to... Uh, have a conversation about about failure, about setback, about resilience, and how this relates to um, to business. And um, you know, because we we often don't learn from our failures, do we? And we often don't analyse them enough, and uh, we kind of shy away from talking about them. And um, but actually, those setbacks can really help launch us to great success. Before we um, I talk and really introduce you more to um, my great guest today, Jason Coldwell. Um, I'd like to say a thank you to my guest last week. John Vespasian was on the show. We talked about sequentiality, and this was really interesting. This about uh, you know how you know through history people have um, gone on to achieve amazing things, and um, you know he talked about uh, sequentiality being a sequence of steps. But the reality is that people who are really successful, uh, what they tend to do is um, be very clear on the area they're working towards, and then just keep working towards it and uh, finding out um, you know opportunities along the way that can then lead them to um, sort of success and revenue. And there was some really good stuff in there. Now that's currently not in the archive; it's on hold for the first time in years. We lost a guest we lost john and i had to busk at the end and uh and summarize the show but we're going to record the last little segment in, in a week or two's time and then that'll be in the archive so we're all faced aren't we with setbacks in our personal and professional lives and if you listen to the interview with david white a few weeks ago you'll realize that you know in life often we set ourselves the expectation that life's going to go perfectly that we're not going to be vulnerable that um, that things are going to you know, work according to plan. And the reality is that very often they just don't. And uh, one of the things we have to do is accept that. Um, but how we overcome these and then turn those lessons into, into great success um, is something that's really well worth talking about. And we're going to talk about that with, with Jason. Now, Jason Caldwell is a world-class athlete. He's also a trainer in leadership and high performance. He's a keynote speaker. Jason rode and received his bachelor's degree in business from um, Sonoma State University. And upon graduation, he was invited to row for uh, Vespa Boat Club's elite rowing team in Philadelphia, where he won two gold medals, a silver and a bronze at the national championships over three years. And his career really moved on from there. In 2015, Jason captained and represented the USA in a rowing race at 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. And then on the 19th of January 2017, Jason and his crew crossed the finish line once again, not only winning the race, and we've had um, rowers before who've uh, who crossed the Atlantic, and uh, we had incredible Mick Dawson who rowed the North Pacific, but what um, Jason and his team actually did was they broke the world record as the fastest team to ever row across the Atlantic Ocean some feet. 
Now, his next world record, which was set this year, involved the, the longest crossing of the Namibian desert unassisted, which uh, I think is quite incredible. Why anyone would want to do that? Um, though I, I imagine it, and it's a beautiful place to go and visit. But uh, Jason um, did that. Um, he's the president and owner of Latitude 35 Leadership. He uses experiential training to explore the finer art of leading and maintaining high-performance teams. So a huge welcome to my guest today, Jason Caldwell. Hey, thanks, Chris. Uh, appreciate it. and happy to be on. Yeah, very welcome, sir. And uh, just for our listeners uh, today, always, always interesting to know where, where you're actually you know, living. Where, where are you at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Coming from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in California, so just about, uh, about 30 miles outside of San Francisco. Oh, and a little town called Danville. Dando. Oh, I've not... Um, I've been to San Francisco once, and I'd love to go again. I think it's a beautiful place. But I've got relatives there, actually. Um, so time I, I went over and checked, checked them out uh, again. Now, uh, Jason, you um, have obviously had an amazing story, and you've you know, had to learn from all sorts of failures, and you know, resilience has really kind of stepped into this. But before we get into some of that, you know, tell us a bit about you know, your background. You know, what was life like growing up for you? And what was it that inspired you to this incredible life of adventure, but also leadership development? Yeah, sure. So um, growing up, always was into adventure, always out wanting to travel, building forts as a kid, all that kind of good stuff. And, um, uh, you know, got into to, to baseball at an early age played. That's the, uh, the more exciting version of cricket, you know, so that we play here in the States. But um, uh, in, and um, played in college, I uh, got injured, but uh, fortunately was able to get into to rowing um, late in my college career and then um, got invited to an elite training team on the East Coast of the United States. And one of the interesting things there was that um, – when you're rowing at an elite level and there's, you know, there was 16 uh, guys from around the country that were invited to this team. And, um, you know, we switch in and out of different boats. And one of the things I noticed almost immediately out there was that how, how one guy being switched out of one boat and into another boat can make such a dramatic difference. And as I started to row a little bit more and get to know the sport better and get stronger and better in the sport myself, I realized that it wasn't really the strength of that individual that was kind of, you know, really the, the reason why the boat was, was, was doing better or worse. It was kind of how the people that were already in the boat perceived that individual. And so I, as being at six foot four, 200 pounds, being the shortest and lightest guy on the team at the time, um, <laughs> needed to figure out a way that I could be faster and be on that top boat. And so this is kind of how I started getting into what, you know, what I really believe was, was the, the main reason for my success in rowing at that level was that um, that kind of leveraging of human emotion, those, those, the, that type of leadership. So when you went into a boat that you were trying out for with uh, seven other big, strong guys that were kind of starting to, you know, to um, uh, include you in that boat. It wasn't about how hard you could row. It's about how how well the guys uh, liked you and, and how hard they wanted to row for you. So if you could kind of leverage seven other men, it was so much more powerful than just simply rowing hard as an individual. And so that's kind of what got me interested in leadership training. So, And I also realized that I learned all this by being out and participating and experiencing things i wasn't reading this in a book um i was i was i was learning this by being out there and just kind of experiencing this adventure that i was having for three and a half years on this team so i think that's how kind of 
my life and adventure and um, my life and leadership kind of married themselves up was was learning learning that lesson. Uh, it's quite very interesting that as well and. And I don't know if it's you, you know, experience the same thing, but I work with a lot of leadership teams and uh, we have some similarity in what we do, but you obviously come back from that real sort of sporting experience and, and, and angle. And, you know, leadership teams in, in organizations, you know, typically uh, maybe, you know, seven, eight people. Sometimes they're a bit smaller, mm-hmm. sometimes they're a bit larger. But, you know, that's actually, you know, your observations from being in a team there with, with um, was it seven or eight people, eight other yeah. Instead of other people, you know, it actually mirrors quite nicely the the number of people that are typically in a leadership team. So I guess the dynamics got you know some similarity. Absolutely, exactly. Um, so yeah, so it makes quite a lot of a lot of sense why that um, that experience is valuable. And I think you're absolutely right with that. It is it's often, isn't it? It's uh, it's does somebody does somebody fit? Do do people like them? Do they respect them? Do they trust them? Um, yeah, and uh, yeah. Sorry, I, one of the things I, I really enjoyed about um, rowing that I learned about is that when you when you're learning when you're racing and rowing, the the how you find out who the best rowers are is you, you row two boats alongside of each other, and then without knowing who's going to switch, the coach asks the boats to pull together, and they switch one person in each boat, and then you row it again, and you see what the difference in the two races were, and this the the rule is that the people that aren't being switched need to row the same no matter who switches in and out of their boat. But the reality that we know is, as leaders and people that study and observe high-performance teams is that that's not the case. Humans aren't constant. You can't ask a human being to be the same way all the time. We're not robots. That's what makes us so amazing. Um, and so what I learned at, a, at an early stage out there and why I had so much success was that I realized that if I could win the team, if I could win the guys on my team, which was often done outside, off the water, you know, um, helping them out with things and, and just becoming a, a good friend to them, that even when I switched into their boat, even though they were supposed to row the same as they did, they didn't. They wanted to live up to the expectation I had for him. And that was a powerful tool that I got at my disposal and, and probably what I would uh, kind of, you know, I would, I would deem as one of my biggest things responsible for actually being a successful rower. That's really, really smart. And we, are you, were you from a, a background of rowers? Uh, it's, it, it seems a, a fairly elite sport. And Yeah, no, that's, that's not me, Chris. Um, so, uh, no, I, I played baseball almost my entire life. My dad was a ball player. Um, I played all the classic American sports, baseball, you know, American football and uh, basketball. I injured myself in college playing baseball and couldn't play anymore. And, um, you know, that's kind of what this started my whole process inspired me to be a rower is, is, you know, we're talking about loss today and that's really where the loss came from was, um, I kind of lost the sport that I always thought I was going to play the rest of my life and um, kind of rudderless, no pun intended. And the rowing coach from my university comes up to me. And I didn't even know we had a rowing team. I didn't even know what rowing was at this time. Um, but he came and he uh, he convinced me to try out for the rowing team. And, um, and he was probably the first great mentor and leader that I really was able to observe early, early in my, in my young adult life. Um, he, he started out by saying, you know, don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to cut anybody from the team. And I said, how are you, you going to not cut anybody? You're, you're asking 150 people to try out for a team that's only going to hold 20. 
And he re- he said they'll cut themselves. And um, and sure sure enough, after a few weeks, 150 people got down to 100, down to 70. It just whittled itself down. He didn't cut a single person. And I and I was so inspired um, by that that type of thought process. I mean, he was just always thinking outside the box, and he realized that the right guys on the team would um, would make themselves available for the right reasons. It's yeah. amazing stuff. It's it's an enormous amount of commitment rowing, isn't it? That high level. It's uh, yeah. Serious stuff. Um, the hours you put in uh, on on the boat um, is incredible. Um, so tell us a bit about these um, you know rowing challenges that you you achieved. You know particularly the um, the you know, sort of ta- Talisker Whiskey Challenge and the uh, the world record. You know what what setbacks did you experience on that journey? What did you learn from doing that from crossing the Atlantic? No, oh, jeez, oh, we. Although we only had an hour, but uh, yeah, I'll try to make it work. <laughs> um, <laughs> we got five minutes on this. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what kind of setbacks? So many. Well, um, yeah, I've uh, the the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge is is considered one of the hardest races in the world, and it's a, it's, a, it's essentially a three thousand mile unassisted rowing race that starts in the Canary Islands off the coast of what Northwest Africa and goes those three thousand miles southwest to the Caribbean in Antigua. Um, it's difficult for a number of reasons. Obviously the physicality of rowing 3000 miles is tough, but also the unassisted aspect, which means that once you leave, um, the start line, you are responsible for, you have all your own food on, on board a 29 foot boat, rowing boat. You, you're making your own water by desalinating it. You've got GPS and all that stuff. But if something breaks, you must fix it. If something can't be fixed, you must learn to live without it. And so it's for these reasons, the physicality plus the logistics of this race itself, it makes it, you know, just amazing to, to um, you know, even just finish, let alone trying to win a race or even set a world record. Uh, my first year uh, that I did it, which was 2015-2016 race, 600 miles into the 3,000 race, a uh, 3,000 mile race, I uh, had to have two of my teammates out of my four evacuated due to illness and injury. So, um, you know, we're all of a sudden 600 miles into this race and they're evacuated by sailboat. And so now we're left with myself and just my other teammate, Tom Magarov, to row an ex- another 2,400 miles in a boat that is supposed to be meant by to row by four or five people, now being rowed by two. And um, so obviously that's the biggest setback that comes to mind in, in that first year. And we, we did finish the race and there's a lot of stories there for another time, of course. But um, that setback seemed insurmountable um, at the time, of course. Um, second year, the very next year, I decided to re-up, um, uh, which was the year that we broke the world record. Um, you know, all, all four of my teammates made it across. We did a fine job. However, with about 400 miles left, in the race, we hit a pretty nasty storm, a storm that certainly wasn't supposed to be there. And um, it knocked us from being about 24 hours ahead of the world record on pace to break it by 24 hours to being pretty much right dead set on it, still with 400 miles left to go, which required us to row an average of 80 miles a day for the next uh, five days. And uh, 80 mile days uh, rowing is, um, let's put it in perspective, if you row 70 miles a day throughout the entire crossing, you would break the world record. So to uh, do 80 miles a day at the end of a race, which is you're already beat up and lost, you know, 40 pounds and you've got an infection and fractured, uh, stress fractured ribs and all this stuff was asking a lot, but um, that was probably the biggest setback was that storm. And how we overcome that was, you know, what we're talking about here is this kind of leveraging of human emotion and this type of resilience that um, 
when you when you've experienced it with a team, it's really um, it's it's a really special thing. So, and, and do you think this this attitude of uh, you have to have to go out with the attitude that something will go wrong, so it's not a surprise. You're not shocked by it, or or, or are you just often just generally shocked when something a setback like that does happen? Um, because your mind, your expectation is that you're gonna, you know, beat the world record by 24 hours. Uh, so yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the 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 short answer is is that you have to expect all that unexpected. I mean, first of all, you can't fully train for a race of this magnitude. You can't go out and train for a 3,000 mile race over the span of 35 days. Um, so you know, to me, that is the kind of the definition of resilience: is that you you don't know what's going to happen to you out there. You do know that there you're going to run against some seemingly insurmountable challenges and it's not um, trying to avoid those challenges it's it's what you do when they when they inevitably come and I think um, probably my biggest uh, you know successes with regards to these races the teams that I build and my teammates that I surround myself with and these people are just so resilient Um, the response that I got from my team when after that we hit that storm and we realized we had to row 80 mile days, each of them individually kind of said their piece and responded and reacted to the miles that we had to put in for the last five days of this race. The response was so um, magnanimous. It was so, um, and I don't want to say positive because I don't like to be positive just for positive sake, but these, these individuals truly believed not in them, just in themselves, but in each other that 80 mile days seemed likely and they felt we could do it and that's really the difference and that's why we did it so excellent well, we're going to go to commercial break now we can chat a, a little bit more about that um, after the break we're going to really um focusing too on this Nam- namibian desert um escapade adventure that you've uh, you've been on this year which uh, <laughs> is another right. incredible story so we'll be back with you again in just a com- couple of minutes do do um, come back after the break comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific. Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. 
comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Jason Coldwell. We're talking about learning from setbacks. And uh, Jason was just articulating before the break about his uh, incredible uh, trip, a second trip, really, across the Atlantic uh, when they broke the world record. And you were just saying, Jason, that you, you, know, you got to a point where because of this storm, you were, you, you were going to break the world record by 24 hours. Then you found yourself having to row 80 miles a day, which uh, was an incredible pace. But, uh, but, you know, but the team came together. And they all in the, um, you know, developed, adopted the mindset that 18 miles a day was possible. And you, you got through that. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. You, you, know, you refer to yourself as being the, the leader on this. Um, it, when, in, on, a, you know, on a journey like this, is the leader identified up front? Did you, did you pull the team together? You know, can you ever get mutinies on the, <laughs> when you're going across the Atlantic? <laughs> and someone else decides, actually, they can do that role better than you? Or uh, how, how does that work? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Chris. Yeah, so um, you know all these these adventures that that I do, and I, I commit myself and our sponsors and um, to to one big major epic world record attempt a year, and that is run through Latitude Thirty Five, which is our company. Um, uh, you know, as of now, I've been the captain uh, of of each team, and you do need to identify a captain, um, if nothing else. Um, Certain decisions have to be made both before and and during and during these adventures, but um, there needs to be kind of an underlying, uh, you know, kind of drive by somebody, and so that that has been me so far, um, but it won't always be. And um, I've had people on our teams that have certainly able to fill that role. Uh, Angus Collins, one of my teammates I've been doing the last two world records with, um, certainly has and can fill that role um, and will in the future. Um, and so even though I'm officially the captain of those teams, um, the leadership is, is truly taken up by, by all members of the teams at different points. Because when you're crossing an ocean or a desert, whatever it is, you're having high and low moments yourself and you need to be picked up. So, um, yeah, so that's, it's, it's, it's pretty intense. I suppose the, sometimes it comes down to experience. Have you decided with your next adventure, actually, I'm going to try and break the record for the fastest ascent up Everest or something like that? You probably, I suspect, wouldn't choose to be the leader for that because you've not done it before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, and I also hate the cold. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would, you know, even if we were running it through uh, latitude 35 um, and I was doing a lot of the logistics and setting it up, um, I certainly wouldn't be the person leading us up that mountain. So, no. So, so tell us a bit about this N- Namibian desert adventure. Why, why did you choose the Namib- Namibian desert for the your next adventure, which is quite different to rowing across uh, the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's obviously People, warm because you like the heat, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a big thing. I liked it was hot. Um, well, uh, yeah, that's a good question because I think um, I think a lot of people said, well, that's that's going from water, water everywhere with not a drop to drink to no water and yeah. also not a drop to drink. But, um, well, I, you know, over the, over the last handful of years, um, because of our success, we've, you know, we get a lot of people approaching us um, and our team or myself to, you know, to take on a certain adventure, a world record attempt. And, um, you know, um, I, it's, 
first of all, I need to be able to respect and, and know the person and that's bringing this to me. And so for most of these that come, I, if I don't know you or, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, we don't have time to get to know each other. It's just, it's crazy to go to do something like this that is life-threatening and to be and to be able to go someone you don't know and certainly not someone that you respect. However, on this one, um, one of my teammates who I, I did this crossing with, Ian Couch, who's a, um, who's a Brit and um, who I had gotten to know um, quite well over the last few years. His company does the officiating for the Atlantic Challenge. So I'd gotten to know him well and respected him as um, a former Royal Marine, as an adventurer and a multi-world record setter for various things. And um, he came up to me with this. He said he's always been wa- wanted to do this. This has been on his list for a number of years. And um, he came to me as potential partner and, and putting this together. So I loved it because I, I respected him. I knew him well. Um, the other part is, you know, in this world, uh, in an adventure world anyway, um, you're really kind of respected and known for doing one of two things, either being the first to do something or being the fastest to do something. And um, as this world continues to shrink, we are there's less and less opportunities to be a first. And this was kind of a rare first. We were going to be following um, uh, you know, uh, these old migration paths from nomadic tribes of thousands of years before us. And uh, this was just a very special, special adventure that we could be a rare first. And I felt like I was going to be putting my foot down where maybe human had never put their foot down before. So it's a pretty special thing. Yeah. I mean, is, is it kind of the, you know, it's the first, we, we first recorded because you mentioned that these nomadic tribes and, you know, presumably some of these nomadic tribes that had crossed the Namibian desert at some point. Yeah, and and that's we actually on our a couple of days before we officially started um, the trek, we um, we were uh, we came across these beautiful uh, rock paintings, literally on this face of this rock, um, showing warriors and uh, pictures of giraffe and rhino and um, lion. And I mean, then, and uh, our guide that was with us said that those were about uh, two to 3,000 years old and that further up the, um, the road, there was some that were as, as old as 20,000 years old. And, and so we were literally, I mean, seeing evidence of, of, um, of our ancestors before us going out there and, um, and, and not crossing it because they were getting a world record, but crossing it because they had to follow the food. I mean, when you are, that you're sobered by those types of experiences and um, inspired by them as well. So it was pretty special. Mm. Yeah, I, I was, um, I feel in, in Africa, it, 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 does feel, it does feel ancient. And somehow, I, I don't know, I, I found I was in Kenya a couple of years ago and I, and I thoroughly enjoyed the, experience and spent time with Maasai and mm. and things like that but I, I I really kind of felt like uh almost like I left a part of me behind when I left I, I just uh so fell in love with it really um, well said well said. wildlife and uh yeah it's something very special it, it does feel like the you know the home of civilization where it's where it all began and where it all started it's um it's it's amazing pl- place so I mentioned you did this uh, you did this journey tell us what you were hoping to achieve and what actually happened yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we were, you know, in this oldest, driest, most barren desert in the world, um, and we're just trying to um, to trek 
uh, unassisted, you know, these are all unassisted, consecutive as many miles as we could. And um, we had done as much research as possible and, and found that, that e- even a slightly recorded uh, distance of about 107 miles was the longest anyone had even recorded. And we couldn't even find out exactly if that was unassisted or not. It didn't seem like it. But even if we were giving, uh, you know, the benefit of the doubt, we wanted to, to, to at least break that. And, um, you know, these are tough miles. This is a this is a tough desert where it's 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 scorching hotness and you know during the day and, and freezing cold at night with mountains and wildlife um, and you know never never two miles that look the same. Um, so you know we were we wanted to go out and and do that and it was a team of of three myself, uh, Angus Collins who was who had. Um, we had rode against each other, my first row across the Atlantic, and then we combined forces our second year, rode with each other, um, and broke the world record, as I mentioned. And, you know, he's become a brother to me, and we have a lot of future adventures um, together. And um, and then Ian, uh, Ian Couch, another um, another Brit who, as I mentioned, um, brought this, this idea to me. So it was the three of us, and we had trained for about... Uh, 10 months, we had already done a site visit out there. Um, and we'd spent a few, uh, you know, a few weeks out there, uh, last fall, getting ready, getting prepared for it. So, I mean, this wasn't a casual endeavor by any means. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, nine miles into the trek, Ian started suffering from heat exhaustion on the verge of heat stroke, um, nine miles. And, um, he started, losing his hearing his eyes got dilated he started feeling cold even though it was you know he was hot and um and he was out within nine miles he had to take assistance um we had trackers and um and drivers there was a there's a documentary that was being filmed for it so he had to take assistance from the cars get himself cooled down his court his 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 resting heart rate was 177 beats per minute um just sitting there on his garmin watch so um, he had to take assistance, and just like that, he was out within a half a day. It was it was tough. And then um, a day and a half later, after about uh, 50 miles, Angus suffered the almost the exact same symptoms. Only this time, he passed out and smashed his head on a rock, and um, and he was bleeding from 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 his forehead. So uh, within uh, 50 miles of this of this trek. We, um, I'm, I'm staring down the barrel of finishing this thing completely by myself, knowing that I now have to navigate by myself, find water by myself, and um, have all the gear with my, just myself. So. Incredible. And, and uh, you, yes, you've also got the, the wild animals to consider as well. Yeah, so um, it's really difficult to sleep as I find out as I found out when there's hyena and um, lions kind of screaming in the background. So it's not what you would consider like something that uh, would put you put your mind at ease. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think the, the the unassisted aspect of this is really what makes it difficult. I mean, um, uh, you know, you, you, we we have brought our own food, which was which is fine. We're used to that, but finding your own water in the desert, which for us meant having uh, watering holes that we had already mapped out that may or may not contain water anymore. So sometimes it was a small pool. Sometimes we had to dig for it and other times it just wasn't there at all and we'd have to continue on. So that, you know, add to that, the, um, the elements and the nature and the, the wild animals and you've got yourself a tough trek. And yeah, you know, kind of in, in, intrigued with this, 
you know, was it really wise for you to go ahead without your teammates? And, you know, would you recommend that approach in business? <laughs> yeah, I get, I, you know, I get that question a lot. Some people ask me, like, why did you do that? And others, you know, you know, was that the right choice? And, you know, I've thought about that a lot. And here's the, here's the reality of this is that we, you know, we're all about production. We're all about finishing this, as I imagine people are listening to this as well. Business, we're all about production. We like to talk about building great teams and that kind of right brain emotional type stuff, which is important. It's necessary. But in the end, we, we, we train and we talk about this stuff because we're trying to accomplish difficult tasks. And that's what this was. It was a difficult task. So, you know, um, I owed it to not only myself um, and, you know, and our fans and then being our, and our sponsors and all that kind of stuff, but I owed it to my teammates as well. Um, they would not have wanted me, and they, they told me that at that moment. And, and they wanted us to continue. When Ian was done, he's like, go. You guys need to leave right now. You need to make it to a certain distance before the sun gets down. And Angus, you know, you know himself, uh, and this is somebody who I consider a brother, um, when he went out and he's telling me, you got to get going. You got you to get out of this really hot kind of valley as soon as you can. Um, and, and so, you know, I owed it to them. So it's weird, and it might sound a little bit like a mercenary, but there wasn't really any question in my head that we weren't going to continue on after Ian was gone, and there was no question in my head that I wasn't going to continue by myself once once uh, mm. Angus left. So this is very very hard, this isn't it? When you've got uh, you got sponsors and there's a uh, spotlights on you. Uh, one of my um, friends, uh, Andy McMenemy, who we've had on the show, was the world ultramarathon record holder. He did 66 ultras in 66 consecutive days in 66 different cities, and he he nice. tore his uh, Achilles tendon on day three, I think it was. Um, <clears throat> but uh, against all medical advice, and uh, he he you know went against that advice, and they were packing him up every night and getting information on research from around the world and eventually it, it healed itself but uh, there was the first known instance um, yeah. but he had you know said i got so much you know so much resting on this I spent weeks and weeks well 18 months organizing it yeah. my life on hold to do it we were going ahead um yeah, interesting one um now you yeah. you mentioned uh, sorry no no I'm, sorry. I'm agreeing with you 100 percent. that's <laughs> tough <laughs> You mentioned to me, you know, in planning the interview that, um, you know, really analyzing failure is important in business. And it doesn't, often doesn't get done. What conclusions did you come to from this journey uh, that can be taken back mm-hmm. into the world of work? And we've got about three minutes before commercial break. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I think one of the things I, I, I took away from, from just kind of experiencing this type of failure and loss was that oftentimes we're embarrassed by our failures. Um, we, we try to make excuses for them, um, you know, or we, you know, we're, we don't want to talk about them. But I, what I've learned is that, you know, truly successful individuals and leaders of great teams are not embarrassed by them, actually. And then they, they actually talk about them all the time. And they, they understand their failure to an extent that they can um, really share them with other people. And they do this because they're secure in the successes that they've had. And not only are they secure in the successes that they've had, but they realize that those successes wouldn't even have been achievable without 
not only failing, but learning from those failures, processing those failures, and just kind of and, and speaking then and sharing those with other people. And I think that that's something that I've I've learned a lot over the last few years, um, having various failures along my um, you know my succession of successes, but um, but also just really trying to you know sit there and 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 analyze those and say you know how can I bring these to other people, and I think that's a that's probably one of the most important things I've learned along these kind of seemingly impossible tasks. Mm, that's a really important message for for business, I think, and, and that realization when, when people do set um, big projects and big tasks, I mean, sometimes it can be, it may not happen because of the, you know, failures of, uh, of teams, but uh, it, there also can be circumstances and situations that actually, you know, get in the way. And actually there might be a better result if you wait a bit longer and take a bit more time uh, to, to get there. So you, yeah, you, you, you appreciate it. Yeah, you're kind of putting yourself out there, and I know I've got like 30 seconds, but you know, you're putting yourself out there, and and you're going to have failures. I get, I do a lot of keynote speeches, and one of the things I get sometimes, people come up to me afterwards, and in a thing, an effort to relate to me, they say things like, "Oh, I'm just like you. I hate losing. I I never fail," and I, and I do not relate to that at all. And I and I, I'll let them know too, like, "Oh, I fail all the time," and I think they look at me kind of, kind of like quizzically, and like, and they're they're kind of. They're, they're, they're not sure about that. But the fact is, if you choose to participate in life to this extent, you are accepting failure. So. Yeah. 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 I think that's, uh, yeah, the, the, more, the more you do, the more failure you're going to experience. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's the product of participating in life. And, um, you know, that's one of my favorite uh, titles of any book was called The Perks of Being a Wallflower. It's a pretty popular book written in the 80s. And, and that the title is so great because it's, it's like saying, like, basically, the perks of being a wallflower is that you won't get hurt. But yeah. the other end is participating in life. You, you will get you'll get beat up and you'll get smashed and, and you'll get you'll, you'll get your heart broken, and everything else, and you'll be better for it. And that's great. So. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Well, we're going to commercial break again. After the commercial break, we're going to look at some uh, sort of yeah, com- components and reflections uh, on this journey that uh, I think are very, very helpful for us all to consider in our, in our businesses and our lives. We'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. 
The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. tuned into the business elevation show with your host chris cooper if you have a question or comment about our show please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk that's chris at chriscooper.co.uk now back to chris cooper Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm talking to Jason Caldwell. We're talking about learning from setbacks and his amazing journey through uh, Namibia at the moment. And I, I really I sort of draw some parallels um, to to this. And I, I love this uh, subject because you know, my, my book, The Power to Get Things Done, whether you feel like it's or not, was, um, you know, there's you there uh, on your own. Now your friends have left. Uh, you're having to um, dig for water. You're unassisted. You've got wild animals. And I remember you telling me when we chatted uh, that uh, you actually were being stalked by lions at one stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you you know the the power to get with the power to get things done is that you need to have strategies or create situations that mean that you're going to act. And and for you that was you know you've got sponsors. You've got um, the, the the wants and needs of uh, of people that are around you. And also you've got this. There's still this goal to aim for, which is a world record. But um, and and all that you know helps you to get you over the finish line and, and helps you to keep on moving forward rather than giving up. I suspect with you uh, combined with your own tenacity. But I'm intrigued. You know, was getting this world record was it really important when in the midst of it you're you know you're surviving day by day or sorry well hour by hour in a very dangerous desert situation. You know, did that. Did that leave you for a, a moment? You know, is that um, is the journey was the journey more important than the destination? Yeah, yeah, Chris, it was. It's, it's a it's a great question. So I, you know, with a lot of these world record attempts, and especially this one here in the desert, Namibia, um, you know, I'm obsessed with the world record as I'm training. You know, for every 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 workout I'm doing, everything I'm doing, I'm just I'm I'm simply driven by this um, this you know to train myself for the ability to to break this world record to do this thing that no one else has done before. And of course, at the end of it, once I've achieved it, I'm I'm certainly happy that I did. But in the in the midst of it, in the middle of the desert it's not the same one of the things I kept getting struck by while I was out there and I and I, of course I had a lot of time to think because I was on my own um, uh, is this kind of this kind of juxtaposition between a maze and a labyrinth and I, and I don't know why I came, kept coming back to this thing but a maze by, by definition is, is simply a, a challenge that you must try to do as quickly and with as little air as possible I mean we've all kind of drawn those gone through those mazes on a on a paper on the back of a newspaper whatever it is and you're just trying to get through it you know try not to make any mistakes and you're trying to get to the other side but a labyrinth even though they're used a lot um uh, synonymously, they're not the same. A labyrinth is actually kind of a journey of this like self-exploration and self-actualization. And the, the whole point of a labyrinth is not to finish it. It's, it's to actually spend time in it and to become a better version of yourself once you've completed it. Completing it is just the end of it. It's like watching a movie. Once the movie's over, it's over. And then you decide how much value there was in that movie. A labyrinth is like that. You're just you're, you're spending time in it, but you're not necessarily trying to rush through it. And I think there was this great metaphor that I had for, for my races and for life and for business itself was that too much do I spend, and I, I, would, I would often challenge that we spend, 
in that maze, going from one challenge to the next, check it off the list, get to the next one. I need that promotion, do this, do that. But we don't spend enough time kind of going back and processing and learning from these things. And this, this, this desert trek truly had me kind of taking stock of what I was learning from this loss, what I was, you know, what I was gaining, what I was losing. And it was much more of a labyrinth. And I, I really wanted to be able to take that with me and say, okay, you need to spend more time in your life as a labyrinth instead of just a maze. So. Yeah, it makes a, it makes a, a huge amount of sense. I mean, were you ever on this journey concerned about your life? Yeah, I'd be lying if I did. I mean, I went to, I don't tell my mom that, but yeah. Um, so, mom, if you're listening, put it on. She you. might know now. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, this this stuff is is it hasn't been done for a reason. You know, there's there's a lot of logistics. It's hard and it's dangerous. And it, so, of course, yeah. I had a you know I had a go went to a watering hole that I did not think was going to be there. I was desperate for water. I only had about three liters left and I wasn't supposed to see water for another day at least um, and come to a watering hole. It's fresh, but it's, you can, you can see fresh lion prints everywhere. You can smell kind of the, the must and the lion urine and you can hear them kind of like that glittery roll roar in the background. I'm, I'm desperately trying to fill this water up. Finally, the tracker who would come down only when I'm in these areas of lion prides came and says, you, you got to get out right now. And I've essentially spent the next five miles like running. Um, just to find out when I finally got to a safe spot that, that this line had been kind of stalking me on, on the other side of this dry riverbed for the last five miles. So th- those kinds of elements of danger were always present. And, um, and of course, there's no you know, there's substitute line for whatever, you know, waves or sharks or just elements in the ocean. Um, you know, but um, still, there's, there's those lessons in that process. And I, and I love that story, because not because there was a line in it necessarily, but because, um, you know, there's these decisions to make, and I had, to, you know, I had, I had to make them quickly and on the fly, and, and, and the, just really interesting things that I can process and learn from. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I think when you're, you know, when you're you know, running a, in a, in a project, um, and things are tough, you know, there's often, you know, encouragement that can be really, really, help, you know, really sort of helpful. Um, you know, did you have that encouragement um, from anybody because you're out there on your own? And uh, you know, if, if so, um, how did it help you through the, the journey? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so absolutely. I had encouragement and, and uh, it was, in, you know, it was essential that I took encouragement where I could find it. And, um, you know, I, I found over the years that I take this type of encouragement in unlikely places when I'm in these, these adventures. Um, I always kind of say that you can do something unassisted, which uh, these have to be when they're being recognized as a world record. You know, the unassisted row means you got to, you know, provide your own water and food and all this stuff. Same with the desert, but you can't do them unsupported. And the difference between unassisted and unsupported, in my mind, is, is unsupported is that kind of emotional element that you need. And I certainly, even though I spent much of the desert crossing on my own, certainly found a lot of support. Um, two ones that come to mind, um, one is um, I had to have a tracker during certain concession areas. He would just get out of the cars and meet me and, and get ahead of me. Um, and certain times. And so he would, he would, he would be, you know, tracking, looking for, for lion track and all that stuff. He was protecting me. Um, but because I was by myself, I was kind of desperate for this human contact and, and he didn't speak a lot of English and I certainly didn't speak Afrikaans, but, um, but we, we still got this relationship that we would just kind of go back and forth. And, um, I, I finally, I'm halfway through the the desert and I, I realize 
I broke the world record and he happens to be there and he's checking some line tracks and he's, I said, hey, just so you know, I don't know if you care, but I just broke a world record. And he kind of looks at me and he's, he, he kind of got to know me a little bit and he said, just kind of consider it for a second. He's like, all right, great. Now you're a man. <laughs> that was it. That was it. <laughs> that was his only thing he said to me. It was great because, you know, the last time I said a world record, there's fireworks going off with my team when we get to Antigua. And here I am in the middle of nowhere breaking a world record, and now I'm a man. And I, I, just, I love the, the, that response. It couldn't have been more, like, apropos in that m- moment because we're in the middle of the desert, and this is a person who has spent his life in the desert saying, hey, if that's what you need, that's great. And he just really made me think about that. And that, that kind of support at that moment, which doesn't seem like support, was was so great. And there's another one I'll just say briefly is, um, you know, I, I didn't even know there was five cars because they had cooks in there cooking for the film crew. And they had the film crew themselves and trackers and, and other people that were supporting the, the venture. And although I, I didn't, I'd never, you know, I, I didn't even meet them yet. I hadn't met a lot of them. But, I, you know, they, they would have to, and they couldn't go in a lot of the places I was at, but every now and then I'd see a, a car or something like that. And, and one, one of the cars stopped about a mile ahead of me, and I was just kind of like you know, walking, and, and, and a guy who I hadn't met yet, uh, who was uh, a an, an Namibian, just kind of waited outside the car, and he just put his fist out for me to just fist bump. And, and I, I, again, no words were spoken. I hadn't even met this gentleman. I wouldn't meet him for another week until after I finished. And there's a picture that was captured of me just kind of bumping his fist. And he doesn't even realize that at that moment, that was so important, so important. Not a single word was t- was was even um, given to each other, but just that like that little moment where he basically said, "Yeah, I understand what you're doing, and it's amazing." Was it got me through the rest of that day? Just incredible kind of encouragement in that way. Yeah, amazing. Um, it's, it's it's fascinating how things like the you know the the fist bump. Uh, yeah, you know, spreads around spreads around the world because it was not something we were doing two or three years ago. As far I know, as it's become an international symbol for go get them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. It's a, it's amazing when you meet some of these people. I, I remember meeting um, some Maasai warriors, and one of them said, "Where do you, where where you come from?" And I said, "Leicester in England." Ah, you know Jamie Vardy, and then he said, "The striker for Leicester City," yeah. and <laughs> it was quite bizarre, really. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, so um, I'm just really intrigued now. You've you've um, you've completed this. You, you got how far did you get in the end? Just to 140 miles. 140 miles. Yeah. I mean, and, and could, were you thinking you might go further? Was there a point that you had to you had to stop, or was that a natural stopping uh, point? I, I I was, and to be honest with you, there was a certain feeling of. Maybe I turned my keys in a little early. I mean, I certainly was suffering. I mean, my feet had infection, and, and, I, and I, I was, you know, I'd already lost quite a bit of weight. And, but um, I, I stopped at a, a, my a watering hole there. I'd, I'd broken the record the day before. I wanted to put some miles uh, past it to really kind of just show that I didn't just barely do it. But there was a part of me that, um, you know, my teammates who were now recovered, they were in the cars with the film crew. And I wanted them to have that experience. I think part of being a captain and a good teammate is is understanding that there's more than it's it's, it's not just about you. And so here's my teammates that were desperate to have this adventure. And, and, you know, one of them had, you know, you know, four hours of that adventure and the other one had a day and a half. And I wanted them to be able to reconnect because we were going to spend the next week or so you know, going and exploring and, and, and doing some other things. I wanted them to have that. So I decided this was good enough and I wanted them to, then they could join me. And that's what happened. Excellent. Now, before we, we've just got a few minutes now till the end of the interview. And uh, you know, just tell us a little bit about how, how you help leaders and organizations through your work. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, 
Uh, Latitude 35 is, a, is, a, is an organization that I started a number of years ago, and there's two arms. There's the racing arm that we do this big epic adventure, one epic adventure a year, which we've spent the hour already talking about. But the other side is we do leadership training and development with, with large organizations and business schools around the world. And we run maybe 30 to 40 uh, of these types of programs a year all over the world. And and um, usually they have some kind of an experience attached to them. Like I told you before, I, I find that having an experience um, kind of tr- makes you transcend the day of learning itself. And I learned that on the water when I was learning to row. So I wanted to bring that to our clients. So usually we're taking them on an ep- epic adventure of themselves. We'll go out and teach them to row on some famous lake or river, or we'll go take them sailing in the British Virgin Islands. And so half of the experience, whether it's one day or five days or whatever it is, is kind of steeped in this kind of rich, unique experience. But the other half is is really kind of um, de, you know, uh, kind of unpacking and 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 f- like really an academic kind of Socratic type of. Um, finding out why they, you know, what are they learning from this experience, and and we've we've, we've seen it to be quite uh, quite powerful and beneficial. But I think the the biggest thing that kind of makes our um, kind of our experiences so valuable to our clients is that the experiences that we share. So everybody that's part of the Latitude Thirty Five team, whether you're on the racing side or you're on the leadership development side. They've had experience. They've been led by great leaders and, and bad leaders. They've been leaders themselves. They failed. They've had successes, but they take all those and they're really good about processing, like we've talked about, learning from failures and sharing them with our clients. So a lot of our of our time spent with our clients is having that experience that they're having, but then sharing our experiences with them in a way where they can see themselves inside of our stories. And that's what really we want to do. And that's what today is all about, where we're kind of sharing these stories. I'm sharing stories with you so that you can see yourself in them. So you can say, you know what, God, I can really relate to what he's saying right now. And I've got kind of a something uh, uh, that I'm going through right now that's very similar. And that's exactly what we want. And that's what we bring to our clients and why I think our work is is powerful and why, why it's successful. So. Excellent. Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, really good. And then um, I'm going to have to going to have to wrap the show up now because I've only got a minute left. Um, no but problem. I think if I could just thank you so much for being on. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you, Chris. Hey, anytime. Loved it. You're very well. And and if I can, you know, if I could sort of summarize it, uh, really, just briefly. So the, the way you said about choosing to participate in life, you're going to get beaten up. Uh, that's the reality of it. However, you're also going to grow, aren't you? And you're going to you're going to mm-hmm. develop, and you're going to yeah. achieve more. And one day you look back, and you'll be able to enjoy your life all over again because you've achieved so much. So I think choose to participate in life would be uh, and and really learn from those setbacks. So um, if you want to find out more about Jason Caldwell, go to latitude35events.com. That's latitude35events.com. That's three five events.com and on next week's show it's my 300th show can't believe it and we're going to be talking about living a remarkable life a little bit like jason is i think um and we've got um, my guest is former scotland rugby captain uh, rob wainwright who's also now um, fulfilled um his uh, rugby ambitions but he's uh, now a a farmer of wild stock in a very remote uh, scottish island and he's found his fulfillment there so do uh, listen into that show and uh, any questions comments come to me at chris at chriscooper.co.uk or get in touch with jason at latitude 35 events if he can help you thanks very much We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.